your son showed the world what true humanity is by living in obedient submission to you. Where our allegiance is divided, he showed a perfect allegiance, whole in every way. We live in a world marred by death. The unavoidable grave is our just consequence. Your son showed us what true love is by laying down his life. The suffering servant, who is also a king, went to the greatest lengths to secure an assembly of people for your kingdom. He died an unjust death due to our sin. But you, being unwilling to let your Holy One see decay, wishing to vindicate him in the face of all the assembled evil, you broke the bonds of what seemed like the most powerful and most certain force on earth. You brought your son back to life like you promised you would. You showed your authority over all the kingdoms of this world that their time is coming to an end. They have been judged. They have been found unjust. Their days are numbered. Give us clarity, Lord, about who we are now in Christ. We are part of a train of glory following our King who is lavishing the Holy Spirit on us and so many good gifts like peace with you and with one another. Gifts like your miraculous word that is able to reveal what is in our hearts and heal the illness in our souls. Gifts like mercy that fills our hearts and keeps expanding and flows into every relationship we have. So as we have received your Holy Spirit and been baptized into your church, we ask for your help that our lives would be part of your renewed humanity. Help us to bear your image and your name in righteousness and justice. Help us to show the world what true love is by laying down our lives and bearing our cross. Help us to do all of it through the power of trusting your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us and trusting in the faithfulness you showed Jesus by not leaving him in that grave. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat. You can open your Bibles to our reading from earlier, Luke 24. Luke 24. Particularly, we're going to look at verse 7. This last Friday was a day of rejoicing, even though it was also a day of mourning. We were rejoicing because it was the first time since before COVID that the majority of our church was able to gather together in one single gathering. And we did so to remember and have impressed upon us the nature of the cross, the nature of the crucifixion, of the sacrifice of Jesus. We gathered to remember that it's at the cross that the good news of God is delivered to mankind. Now, in the last 14 months, I don't know if you've noticed this, but some bad stuff's been happening, right? The news seems to have been filled with nothing but what is bad news. And there's been so much bad news that it's pushed most everyone to look for good news wherever they can find it. In other words, to look for their own personal gospel. Remember that the word gospel that we are so familiar with as Christians comes from an old English word that means good news. And so, in a sense, we could say that people in the entire world has been looking for their own personal gospel or good news. People have turned in every direction that there is for that news. Will that good news come from government programs or from personal freedoms, from politicians, from candidates, from ideologies? Will it come from advances in social reforms or activity in social justice? 
Will it come from habits, addictive habits like alcoholism, the legalizing of drugs, or pursuing sexual and romantic relationships? Will it come from simply rising above and being nice to others? Are these the good news? What we've found is that even in just this last 14 months, these gospels are false and they prove empty and even destructive. Maybe not immediately, but over time, they will prove destructive. And eventually, you will find that they are empty promises full of disappointment and confusion. But on Friday, beginning with the cross, we started to look at the good news, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel will not disappoint because it is given by the one who has been faithful to his people from time eternity past and will continue to be faithful into eternity future. And so today, we're going to look at that gospel, the one and only gospel. And we're going to look at it from the vantage point of our verse-by-verse study of the prophet Daniel that we've been conducting for the last few months. Specifically, the selection that we looked at last week regarding the victorious reign of the one called the Son of Man. Can you say the Son of Man? Man. Today we're going to look at the fact that the good news of the Son of Man is found in the risen Jesus. The good news of the Son of Man is found in the risen Jesus. And then we will finish by asking the question of what each of us will do with this good news that we have heard. Now, if you are a non-believer, if you don't follow Jesus Christ, if you got drugged here by somebody, uh, you're probably going to look at this and go, what does this even mean? Well, we're going to break it down as we go. The sermon today is going to be more topical than we're used to in order to give you a broad view of the activity of this figure called the Son of Man. We're going to look at the Old Testament and then the New, but what we're going to find ourselves doing is having an anchor point in our earlier reading from Luke 24, And we're going to connect it to Daniel 7. So even on this day where sometimes only the Christers come to church, you know, those who go to just Christmas and Easter, right? We're still a church who's going to pour through the word. Amen? Amen. So let's get going and let's go to Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to notice a few things here this morning. Let's read it again. It says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Here in this recounting of the resurrection, the author and historian Luke gives us insight into the eyewitness accounts of the empty tomb 
in which Jesus' dead body was supposed to have been found. And friends, just because this story is 2,000 years old does not mean that you don't have to reckon with the fact that that tomb was found empty. When they came to the tomb, the messenger angels seemed to almost admonish the disciples, as if to say, guys, why are you perplexed by this? Why are you looking for Jesus as if he were still dead? It's as if they said, do you not remember that he told you that he was this son of man? And they reminded him that Jesus said that in that capacity he would be betrayed, crucified, and then after three days, rise to new life. It was as if the angels were saying that the disciples should have known better than to be confused by all this. But we kind of understand, don't we? Because we are often confused, even with the entirety of the closed canon of Scripture in our own hands, we get confused too, so we would have been no different. But the angels were asking, do you not remember what the Son of Man told you? Now, in current Christianity, we kind of know that this is referring to Jesus, this Son of Man idea, but many of us go maybe even the entirety of our Christianity not really understanding what this means. This one verse, verse 7, is a verse of immense depth, and using it, Luke calls us to remember what the Son of Man means. It calls us to remember who the Old Testament declares to be the Son of Man. And so, working our way through Daniel at the moment, And then having just looked at some of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament on Friday, we can remember that the Old Testament prophesied a son of man that would suffer and then reign victoriously. Long before he ever existed in human form, the Old Testament prophesied a son of man that would suffer and then reign victoriously. This was a promise. Would you turn back with me to Daniel chapter 7, where we're going through verse by verse, and we'll refresh what we learned last week. Daniel chapter 7, primarily in verse 13. There in Daniel 7, we saw in the full context of the chapter that Daniel was given a vision of earthly kings and their kingdoms that would come one after another, always trying to usurp authority from the previous one. And while this was happening on the earthly plane, in heaven, at the same time, the one true eternal God sits unmoved in his reign and judgment over the nations. And Daniel is shown that at a certain point, the ancient of days, the eternal God, will judge the kingdoms as deficient and remove their dominion and punish the kingdom that most vividly rebels against him. This was the context we covered last week. And at that moment in the vision, another figure is presented to the Ancient of Days as he sits in judgment, starting there in verse 13. Let's go ahead and read it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Ancient of Days judges this figure to be worthy to receive all dominion, glory, and an everlasting kingdom that spans the world, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And this figure is spoken of as one like 
a son of man. Now, when the phrase son of man is used in the New Testament, this story that we just looked at is the context to which it is referring. Anytime in the New Testament, son of man is used, it's referring to this. Even in our reading from Luke 24, this is what the angels were referring to when they said that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. In other words, he has to be alive to be crowned king. Daniel 7 is prophesying this amazing coronation service in the very throne room of the creator God in which Jesus is crowned as anointed king of the kingdom of God. But then continue on with me and look at two other sections that happen as a result of this coronation. Take a look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, that's an angel, and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Those are the old kingdoms. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Something similar is said in verse 27. Skip ahead there to verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. This king, his kingdom, the Most High's kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This vision and the interpretation of it is that the Son of Man is declared king and given dominion. But then also, those who are his people, the saints of the Most High, are given possession of that same kingdom and dominion. They are glorified along with the Son of Man. These saints are those who, by his work, the Son of Man has set apart in holiness and made righteous. The word saint means that they have been made holy for God's purposes. And friends, you don't have to be Catholic and dead to be a saint. A saint is one who has been made holy by the blood of Jesus. If you believe in Christ and follow him as your Savior and Lord, you are made holy for his purposes. Here in Daniel 7, we're left with no impression, though, of how that happens or why the angels of Luke 24 would reference crucifixion and resurrection. It's not here. But this is where we start to look across the Old Testament, And we're going to look at two other well-known passages that we also looked at on Friday at our Good Friday service. And those are Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. We're going to look at pieces of those. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Throughout the history of the church and even prior to that in the Jewish faith, these three sections, Daniel 7, Isaiah 53, and Psalm 22, have been cornerstones of understanding about one that would save the people of God from their sin. And they are linked together because they have the same two themes within them that we just looked at in Daniel 7. Being given dominion as king and giving possession of the kingdom to his people that he has made holy. We've already seen these in Daniel 7, so let's look for them now in Isaiah 53. Starting a little bit before Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 52. Would you turn there with me? Go to Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. And even if you've never looked at your Bible before, or you're borrowing one of ours, you're going to know three cornerstone sections that speak of what we looked at in Luke 24. So let's take a look first at Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Look there with me. And notice 
that in your Bibles, verse 13 through 15 of chapter 52 is attached to chapter 53. The chapter breaks and headings are not inspired because they were not in the original text. And yet within the flow of thought, this portion of 52 has long been interpreted to be the beginning of the events of chapter 53. So let's take a look there at 52 verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This servant figure that we're about to look at shall prosper and act wisely. And because of what follows in these verses, he will be high and lifted up, exalted. Friends, these words mean that he will be exalted to a place of authority as king. How did he accomplish this? Well, keep going. It says in verse 14, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. In other words, he will be exalted, but first he will be marred, he will be suffering. And in that suffering, he will cleanse or make holy many nations. Keep going. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How did he accomplish this exaltation and this cleansing and holiness of the nations? Well, we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've gone our own way. And the Bible tells us that at the core of our beings is a rebellious spirit that desires to make ourselves God, deciding our own way, dismissive of God's reign in our lives. But rather than letting us destroy ourselves eternally, God initiated a plan whereby he would come in the form of a human, acting as a servant, and in this state, as both God and man, he would sacrifice himself as an offering, a sin offering for you and me. In this, he took our place and became our sin. He took on our curse, as we looked at Friday. He was nailed to a cross, pierced for sins he did not commit. And even more painful, he took on separation from God the Father, smitten and afflicted on our behalf. But out of this, we see something miraculous happen. Not only is he exalted, as in Daniel 7, but then also look at what happens to the people that are his. It says in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their 
iniquities. Friends, that's talking about those of us who are his people. Just as in Daniel 7, he is exalted as king. Just as in Daniel 7, he draws people to himself and makes them righteous. But this shows us that there's something else that happens. There's a suffering that occurs. Jesus voluntarily became the one that would be crushed for our sins. He became the guilt offering that we needed to have our sins wiped away so that we might be forgiven and welcomed back into relationship with the very God we rebelled against. Christ took on our sin but then gave us his righteousness. And by his suffering and crucifixion, we became saints, set apart and holy to our God. But then, not only in Daniel 7, not only in Isaiah 53, but would you turn with me to Psalm 22? Go back to the left and go to the Psalms and go to Psalm 22. And as we saw on Friday, Psalm 22 is a place where we are given autobiographical references and view into the one who suffered this horrible fate on our behalf. He gives us an understanding of what that servant in Isaiah 53 was going through. Let's take a look at a few verses, just a few verses here. Verses 1 and 2. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Here we see the pain of being forsaken by God as he became our sin, took on our division from God. Skip down to verses 6 and 7. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Here we see the pain and ridicule that he endured on the cross. We see that he was spit upon, that he was ostracized, that he was made to be the enemy. And in taking on that curse, he became not a man, but a worm, lower than mankind. Skip ahead to verse 12. He says, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, if you are unfamiliar with your Bible, everything that we've read, Daniel 7, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, these were written well in advance of a man named Jesus of Nazareth being born in Israel. These are prophecies that God, by his infinite wisdom, gave to mankind to say this will happen and it will be fulfilled in one who is known as the anointed king, the Jewish word Messiah, the Greek word Christos or Christ. This dark background we see in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 of betrayal, crucifixion, and death is laid down. And yet, because of this work of the man who became a curse for us, look at what is promised in Psalm 22, 
verses 27 and 28. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Kingship. Drawing the nations to himself so that they might reign as well with him. The Old Testament so clearly prophesied a son of man that would suffer and then reign victoriously hundreds of years before Christ even existed as a man. And so when we move to the Gospels and see Jesus of Nazareth then come on the scene, we should be taken aback because Jesus boldly declared himself to be the Son of Man. Jesus boldly declared himself to be the Son of Man. Friends, 80 times in 77 verses throughout the Gospels, you will find that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, just as the angels did in the earlier reading from Luke 24. It is the name He uses the most to refer to himself, the Son of Man. Theologians, commentators, and Bible scholars alike agree that Jesus is speaking of himself as the Son of Man from Daniel. And this is why there is the definite article, the, in front of Son of Man when it is used in the New Testament. What's more is that he uses the phrase, much like the angelic messengers in Luke 24, to not only speak of his reign as king, but also to describe his death, as well as the fact that he will one day return in judgment. In other words, in Jesus' mind, he is the son of man of Daniel 7, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and the worm that becomes a worm for us in Psalm 22. And all of this, he combines together in the phrase, the Son of Man. But he also uses this to describe the fact that he will one day return in judgment. Now, friends, the point I want to get across to you is to make these claims and not back them up is insanity. It's psychotic. It's foolish and ridiculous. He should be locked in an insane asylum if they are not true claims. I want to challenge you to go back and read any one or maybe even all of the Gospels this week with this Son of Man vantage point in mind and see how it adjusts your view of what was occurring in the life of Jesus as it's recorded in the Gospels. Just as a sampling this morning, we're going to look at some of his claims about himself through the Son of Man imagery. I'm going to give you just seven, just seven of the 77 verses, okay? Let's let's start here. Let me just give you a few. First, Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be divine by saying that he was eternal in nature. In John 3.13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, I've been with God since the beginning because I am God, and I will go back to God and sit in the throne room of heaven for eternity future. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be divine and eternal in nature in John 3.13. Right after that, in John 3.14-15, He says, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here, Jesus is claiming that he would be lifted up, exalted. He would become king upon a cross. He pulled this imagery from the biblical story in Numbers 21 of Moses placing a bronze serpent figure upon a pole to bring healing to the cursed Israelites. And we don't unfortunately have time to go into that this morning, but he's making this reference much as he would do in bringing healing to the nations by being lifted up on a cross. Jesus claimed that he would be lifted up on a cross. He claimed to be divine. He claimed to be lifted up on a cross. Third, Jesus then later claimed in John that this act would draw all people to himself. This is John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He will do that very work that we're talking about in the Old Testament, where he will draw the nations to himself as Savior and King. He claims to be God. He claims to be crucified, or that he will be crucified. And he claims that this very act will draw nations to him. But then Jesus claimed that he would reside with the dead for three nights after his crucifixion. Matthew 12, 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, based upon what they thought in those days, this is an idiom, this heart of the earth, for the abode of the dead, the place where the dead exist. And so Jesus is claiming that he would reside with the dead for three nights after his crucifixion. He claimed to be divine. He claimed that he would be crucified. He claimed that he would draw all men to himself. He claimed that he would be three nights dead. And then Jesus claimed that after those three days, he would raise from the dead. This is Matthew 17, 22 through 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Jesus claimed that he would rise from the dead. Do we have lunacy yet, folks, if this is not true? I mean, first of all, how many of you appreciate it when people talk about themselves in the third person? That right there, right? If he's not royalty, there's a problem. But besides that, these claims that he's made are insane if they're not true. Jesus then claimed that his death was given as a ransom to draw us to himself away from the kingdom of darkness. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus claimed that in his death, he would sacrifice himself so that we would be ransomed away from death and hell and our own sin. And lastly, number seven, Jesus claimed that a day of judgment will come when he will judge between those who are his saints and those who refuse his reign. In Matthew 25, 31 through 32, it's, Jesus is quoted as saying, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, friends, 
He claimed to be divine. He claimed that he would be crucified. He claimed that this act would draw all people to him. He claimed that he would reside with the dead for three nights. He claimed that after three days he would raise from the dead. And he claimed that his death was given to ransom us from our sin. Now, if these could be proven true, then the last one I gave you is also proven true, that he will return to judge the living and the dead. As we look at these claims of Jesus of Nazareth as reported by the Gospels, we have to come to some serious conclusions. Either he was insane with delusions of grandeur, or he was indeed the Son of Man prophesied by the Old Testament. Now remember, there are 80 claims that connect to this Old Testament imagery of the Son of Man, and I've provided you with just seven of those claims. Jesus boldly declared himself to be the Son of Man prophesied by the Old Testament as one who would suffer deeply, and yet through that suffering, reign victoriously. Now, friends, if you like conspiracy theories and, you know, you might think, oh, well, the, the Apollo landing didn't happen. That was all made up in a studio. Does that really affect your life at the end of the day? Not really. If you think, no, it absolutely happened, does that affect your life? Not really. These kind of conspiracies are out there and you can believe or not believe and it doesn't really matter to you. But friends, if the claims Jesus made are true, it greatly impacts your life. The mere presentation of these claims by the gospel writers means that we must come face to face with them. We can't leave them out there and make no decisions about whether or not it's true. If we are non-believers in this room, or even if we are people who may declare that we are Christ followers, but know that we are merely Christians in name only and not in action, we must come to terms with these claims. Either Jesus of Nazareth was insane with delusions of grandeur, or he was indeed the Son of Man prophesied by the Old Testament. Either his apostolic followers desired to propagate a myth that would end in brutal torture and death for all but one of them? Or he was indeed the Son of Man prophesied by the Old Testament? How can we know? Well, friends, we can know by the very reason that we gather here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can know by the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. You see... Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that he is the Son of Man that was prophesied by the Old Testament. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that he is the Son of Man. Throughout the Old Testament, of which I showed you only a handful of verses. Guys, we went through three chapters and even verses within those chapters. And throughout the claims of Jesus, of which I've showed you only a handful of verses, the Son of Man was described as one who would be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. He would do so to prove his sinlessness and his holiness. He would do so to serve as the ransom for each of us so that we might be forgiven and purchased back from the grip of hell. He would do so to be judged worthy of all glory and honor, and he would do so 
to draw each one of us to himself, cleanse us from our sins, justify us in our righteousness, and give us eternal life in his kingdom as a possession that can never be taken away. This is why we celebrate the resurrection. At the garden tomb on that first Easter morning, as the stone was rolled away, the women that had come to find the dead body of their earthly rabbi were reminded that he was not just a man, but he was indeed divine, the very son of man. He is the very son of man that accomplished the mission of salvation initiated by God the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. They could not find Jesus among the dead because death could not hold him. Amen? Amen. Death is a judgment reserved for the unrepentant sinner. In his death, in his burial and resurrection, Jesus took on the judgment that was rightfully yours and mine, and he overpowered it. And rising victoriously from the grave, he now sits in the position of authority over all mankind, over all the kingdoms of the earth, waiting for the moment where, in the sovereign will of God the Father, he will return to make all things right, destroy the chaos of evil and sin, and take full control of the cosmos once and for all. In the words of Daniel 7, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. On Easter, we look back to what the Son of Man has done for us with thanksgiving, and at the same time, we look forward with anticipation to what the Son of Man will do at the resurrection and judgment to come. And in all this, we rejoice because the good news of the Son of Man is found in the risen Jesus. Amen? Amen. This Easter morning, you and I each have a decision to make. One possibility is that you can dismiss the claims of Jesus as lunacy or insanity and gamble with the possibility that there is no God, there is no eternal state, and there will be no judgment. You can gamble that way. But do you really want to? Do you want to gamble against the proof of a risen Savior? And 2,000 years of men and women giving their very lives to proclaim that truth. Another possibility is that you can minimize it and believe the lie that these claims of Christ and the actions that back them up do not require the submission of your life to his reign. Friends, both of these are foolishness because neither will explain the risen Christ. Let me give you a real quick apologetics 101. When the world comes to you and they say, hey, what about Adam's belly button? You look at him and you say, forget the belly button. Tell me about the risen Christ. When they say, hey, how about the idea that Cain needed a wife, but was that one of his sisters? You say, forget about Cain. Tell me about the risen Christ. No matter what the world brings you to disprove the truth of Jesus Christ, you say, I don't care. What do you do with the risen Christ? And friends, you have to reckon right now with the risen Christ. Because the third option, and just to be clear, the right option is to accept these claims of Christ, to welcome them and submit to the truth that they proclaim that is backed up by the proof of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Because with this truth, we receive more than we ever could understand. 
We receive forgiveness of the sin that you and I know that we have committed and will commit. We receive mercy in that we are not handed over to the punishment of eternal separation from God and eternal torment that we deserve. We receive an identity as those who have been made holy and set apart by God for the purpose of proclaiming these truths to the nations. And we receive eternal life in perfect relationship with the one who created us and gives us meaning. And not only that, he has given us relationship with one another in eternal loving unity. And last but not least, in Jesus we receive the stability of an enduring kingdom that can never, ever be shaken, no matter what occurs around us. Friends, I implore you, wherever you are in the midst of your relationship with or rebellion against God, don't dismiss these claims of Christ. Don't minimize their impact and required response in your life. Instead, accept them. Give your life over to them. And then take them to the world around you that needs them so badly, that needs this gospel, the one true gospel, so badly, that Jesus died, that he resurrected, that he is now enthroned as king over his people, and that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is the gospel. The good news that the world needs so badly is found in nothing else. The good news is found only in the risen Jesus. He is risen.